20 years now, we've really tried to answer four important questions. Number one, how does the human body make nitric oxide? What goes wrong in people that can't make it? What are the clinical consequences of insufficient nitric oxide production? And then perhaps most importantly, how do you fix this? Because it's, it's now recognized that the human body cannot and will not heal uh, until you restore the production of nitric oxide. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today, all the way from Houston, Texas, is Dr. Nathan Bryan. Welcome, Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I recently uh, heard you present over in um, Las Vegas at the A4M conference, and I was really um, impressed with the information you presented on um, dietary nitrates and nitric oxides. So you've been, from my take, looking at this for the best part of two decades, and I really was keen to um, um, pick your brains more to flesh out this idea of perhaps nitrates being an unrecognized nutrient in our diet and the role it is involved in um, creating nitric oxide. Um, so perhaps, yeah, first just give us a bit of a background on uh, your history and um, insights in, into how you came into studying nitric oxide. Yeah, so I got into this, I guess, right in, uh, I guess, the year 2000, a couple of years after the Nobel Prize was awarded. I was a student at LSU School of Medicine in Shreveport and trained with a pharmacologist who was trying to unravel mechanisms of, of nitric oxide production in the human body, and that intrigued me. And so <clears throat> that's uh, where I spent the rest of my career. So yeah, going on 20 years now, we've really tried to answer four important questions. Number one, how does the human body make nitric oxide? What goes wrong in people that can't make it? What are the clinical consequences of insufficient nitric oxide production? And then perhaps most importantly, how do you fix this? Because it's, it's now recognized that the human body cannot and will not heal uh, until you restore the production of nitric oxide. And so back in the, I guess, early 2000s, there wasn't a lot known about nitric oxide. We knew it was an important molecule because the Nobel Prize had just been awarded for the discovery of nitric oxide. But we didn't know really how the human body made it. We didn't know what went wrong in people that couldn't make it. And then there were really no technologies at the time to restore and recapitulate nitric oxide production. So to me, that was uh, it was a ripe area of, of investigation, and it's it's we've learned a lot in twenty years. Absolutely. Uh, so let's go through those four areas uh, to um, see what answers you've come up with from those questions. So first of all, um, yeah, nitric oxide. What is it, and how do we make it? Well, it's a gas. It's one. It's one of the few gaseous signaling molecules that's produced in humans. And it's gone in less than a second. And so this very transient gas that acts as a signal has been, uh, that's kind of what's been um, kind of the bottleneck in developing nitric oxide-based therapies. But we now know that the, the body makes nitric oxide through two primary pathways. The first one is through an enzyme that's found in the lining of the blood vessels. And this enzyme called nitric oxide synthase converts arginine, L-arginine, which is a semi-essential amino acid, into nitric oxide, and you get citrulline as a byproduct. And that was the first pathway to be discovered. That was recognized back in the, uh, probably the late 80s, uh, before the Nobel Prize was even awarded. But the problem is that that enzyme that converts arginine to nitric oxide becomes uncoupled and dysfunctional. 
And so that, that mode of production of nitric oxide shuts down. So we make less nitric oxide through that enzyme the older we get. And in fact, it's recognized now that that's what's responsible for age-related disease. So right. arginine production of NO is what declines with age through that enzymatic reaction. Uh, and then number two, we've recognized that the body makes nitric oxide from a dietary pathway. So the foods we eat and through the, the bacteria that live in and on our body, this provides a source of bioactive nitric oxide that can overcome and compensate for the enzymatic loss of nitric oxide in the lining of the blood vessel. And this is done through, as you mentioned earlier, inorganic nitrate that's found primarily in green leafy vegetables. And this is, this is a, a very stable molecule. In fact, it's inert in mammals. Mammals cannot utilize this molecule. It has to be metabolized by oral and gastrointestinal bacteria. And so this becomes really important for the microbiome and the microbiome's effect on chronic human health and disease is that part of the job of the, the bacteria that live in and on our body is to provide a source of nitric oxide. So those are the two ways that we make nitric oxide. Um, again, what goes wrong in people that can't make it, the enzyme becomes dysfunctional. So we've learned through the enzymology and biochemistry of that reaction, how we can recouple and basically regain function of that enzyme. Uh, and then number two, we can promote that pathway through changes in diet, eating more green leafy vegetables. But that pathway only works when we, when we basically eliminate the practices that disrupt that pathway. So number one, you can't use mouthwash. Using antiseptic mouthwash kills these bacteria. It makes your blood pressure goes up. You lose the, the beneficial effects of exercise. Uh, overusing antibiotics, which is a huge problem, especially here in the U.S., um, inhibiting stomach acid production uh, shuts down this pathway. So uh, getting back to what I, what I uh, shared with the A4M is we now know how to recover, recover nitric oxide production, uh, regain function of the enzyme, promote it through the enterosalivary circuit, and then basically eliminating lifestyle practices that inhibit nitric oxide production. And amazingly, people get better. And that's the remarkable thing is you can actually see people begin to improve uh, their health. Uh, medicines go away because, you know, there's no needs for medicines if you give the body uh, what it needs. The human body is remarkable in the fact that if you give it what it needs, it heals itself. That's exciting. Um, so, yeah, the two pathways, I think, historically in, in like, certainly functional natural medicine, the arginine pathway has been um, well understood, but probably very little to no attention on the, the nitrate pathway. But just to go back to that, um, original pathway, if you want to call it that. So you mentioned that the enzyme becomes un uncoupled and um, you, we now know, or not we, um, you, um, of strategies or, or reasons why it becomes dysfunctional and ways to restore it. Or um, my sort of takeaway was that's a, sort of inevitable as we age and we're better off focusing on the second um, uh, nitrate pathway from the diet well, there are we we do know how to recouple that enzyme, and so it's a this nitric this conversion of nitric oxide from L-arginine by nitric oxide synthase enzyme. It's a very complex reaction, so it requires I think six or seven different cofactors and substrates. It's a you know five electron oxidation reaction. It's energetically and kinetically very unfavorable. But what we do, despite all that, that it normally proceeds. Uh, quite efficiently in the human body, provided that these cofactors and substrates are around 
and uh, readily accessible for, for that enzyme. But the rate-limiting step is the oxidation of tetrahydrobopterin, or BH4. That's the rate-limiting step in, in nitric oxide production. So when BH4 becomes oxidized or you don't have enough made, uh, you know, the patients with this methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase right. SNP, the MTHFR, their biopterin levels are, are low because uh, this is this enzyme is what's responsible for reducing biopterin tetrahydrobopterin. So there's some genetic uh, influences on this pathway as well. But here's what we know: we know how to if we can maintain a certain redox balance of of BH4 to BH2 or tetrahydrobopterin to biopterin, then you can recouple the NOS enzyme. And so that's based on you know redox coupling and and and, and oxidation reduction potential. So there's a certain voltage that you need to maintain that redox potential. So it's very com- complicated and complex, but we know how to do that. So we can recouple the nitric oxide synthase enzyme. Um, but, you know, I tell people that if you continue to do what you've done for the past 10 to 15 years that led to endothelial dysfunction and that NOS uncoupling, we can yeah. fix it on a daily basis. But we're not, I mean, it, it's like, it's a war of attrition. If you yes. don't change your habits, then you can continue to have endothelial dysfunction and we can never truly restore and recover function that will last forever because you're not changing your diet and lifestyle and you know some genetics you can't change although we now know how to turn genes on and off and getting a sure. better understanding of that but um so yeah we, we we can show improvements in in endothelial nitric oxide production but again i think as you mentioned it's it's easier to focus on diet and making sure this other pathway that you have everything you need for that to to happen Absolutely. All right. Well, let's explore that pathway because this was new to me. And um, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a few areas which, um, you know, medications and lifestyle can um, favorably or unfavorably affect this. So let's just um, slowly walk through this pathway and uh, maybe help clear up some of the uh, vernacular with nitrates and nitrites. So um, let's start, I suppose, with the, the food sources. Like we get nitrate from food or nitrite or both. And what are they? How are they different? So they are different. Just like nitric oxide is different than nitrite, and it's different than nitrate. So these are really uh, kind of oxidative end products of nitric oxide. So for years, and it probably was the same way in Australia, but you know, for the past fifty years, we've been told that nitrates and nitrites and meats mm. are bad for you because they form nitrosamines and cause cancer. Um, well, that myth was debunked. 20 or 30 years ago. And so now we know that the burden of exposure of nitrate and nitrite comes not from eating cured and processed meats, but really from eating green leafy vegetables. So 85% of the nitrate nitrite that we get from the diet comes from eating green leafy vegetables, which everyone agrees that these are health promoting, beneficial, uh, protection from cardiovascular disease, even anti-cancer effects. So if nitrite nitrate did indeed form nitrosamines and cause cancer, then vegetarians would have a higher incidence of cancers than meat eaters. And of course, that's not the case. So the epidemiology doesn't work. The biologically plausible mechanism of cancer by nitrite nitrate doesn't work. So that that myth has been completely debunked scientifically. So what we now know is that rather than forming nitrosamines, that nitrate can be reduced to nitrite by these oral nitrate-reducing bacteria. So these bacteria live on the dorsal part of the tongue and the crypts of the tongue. And each time we salivate, uh, we get a secretion of nitrate in our saliva. And then the bacteria reduce nitrate to nitrite. And that's a two-electron reduction. Humans can't 
do that reaction. Right. So we're 100% dependent upon the bacteria. And then our saliva becomes enriched in nitrite. And then when we swallow our own saliva, provided their stomach acid, uh, nitrite becomes protonated and you generate nitric oxide gas in the lumen of the stomach. And so this has been shown very clearly that if you eat green leafy vegetables and you can make salivary nitrite through reduction of nitrate by the bacterium, and you swallow your own saliva that you can kill H. pylori infections, wow. you can inhibit gastric ulcerations from NSAID use or um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you can increase gastric mucosal blood flow and actually improve nutrient absorption. Nutrient absorption. Um, so this is a fundamental physiological response and really provides the mechanism of action for eating uh, plant-based uh, diets or green leafy vegetables. But the problem is, and we've, we've quantified this, that we know that you need at least 300 to 400 milligrams of nitrate in any given meal to provide any nitric oxide activity because this is a very inefficient reaction. So only about 5% of the nitrate that we consume becomes nitrite. And so, number one, the Western diet, what we call the standard American diet or the SAD diet here in the U.S., we're only getting about 150 milligrams of nitrate per day. So that's not right. enough to fuel a nitric oxide production. And then number two, we have 200, over 200 million Americans wake up every morning and use mouthwash. And that kills the bacteria that are responsible for metabolizing nitrate into nitric oxide. So no wonder that we have an epidemic of high blood pressure. Because two out of three Americans have an elevation of blood pressure. And no one knows why this is. Now we know why this is. And yeah. then to, to, to further complicate that or to exacerbate the problem, we've got another 200 million people that are using antacids, that are taking prescription antacids, proton pump inhibitors, or even over-the-counter medications that suppress stomach acid production. And so now it's very clear that if you take antacids, that you inhibit nitric oxide production. It's causing about a 35% higher incidence of heart attacks and strokes of people who have been on proton pump inhibitors for three to five years. And so you're completely shutting down the nitric oxide production pathways through both of them. And so for us, this gives us very clear evidence of what are the consequences of shutting down nitric oxide production. Well, it's heart attack and stroke, the number one and number three killer worldwide. So we need nitric oxide, and people need to understand what their body needs to make nitric oxide and also stop doing what's inhibiting the body's production mm. of nitric oxide. Wow. Um, yeah, so many questions there. Firstly, do you think um, it's the nitrites, not nitrates um, that may explain the benefits of fruits and vegetables? You know, there was once thought it was the antioxidants in fruits and vegetables, but giving like um, single and high doses of antioxidants in clinical trials um, has proved um, no or sometimes adverse effects. Um, there's a thought about like this hormesis idea of the polyphenols stimulating like almost a, a mild stressor, but that's a little a bit hard to really pinpoint. But perhaps could we argue that um, it could be nitrates and these should be considered like an essential nutrient now? Yeah, I think I've argued for the past 15 years that these this is really the missing nutrient or an indispensable nutrient that's been missing. And so you nailed it because if you if you try to recapitulate the health benefits of eating uh, green leafy vegetables or a vegetarian diet, the clinical trials have failed. So it's not the antioxidants, it's not the polyphenols, it's not the fiber, it's not the other vitamins and trace minerals. 
it may be the nitrate. But again, all of these other things play an important role in that because they provided reducing equivalents um, for this two electron reduction of nitrate and nitrate. So I think you need all of these. But, I've, but what's yeah. clearly been shown is that you can, you can recapitulate the effects of a vegetarian meal. In fact, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension or the DASH diet works because it provides a certain threshold of nitrate that the thin body can then utilize to make nitrite, nitric oxide, and, and lower your blood pressure. So I think if you, if you, uh, if, if you were to, to reproduce these clinical trials, and instead of trying to add back, you know, the antioxidants and polyphenols and vitamins, and this has been done, if you just give inorganic nitrate, you can, you can lower the blood pressure. Uh, in animal models, if you, comp- if you knock out the gene that makes nitric oxide through nitric oxide synthase, you can completely overcome that just by giving nitrate or nitrite in the diet. So right. it's very clear to me and at yeah. least the people in the nitric oxide field that this is indeed the case. The challenge has been educating physicians, healthcare practitioners, and even patients and consumers around the world how important this is because really then you're, they're armed with the information that they need to really control their own health and manage their own blood pressure independent of medications. Yeah, amazing. Um, so back up to the oral microbiome, um, obviously the you know the small intestine, more the colonic microbiomes um, had the spotlight, but um, I think you argue quite eloquently that the, the oral microbiome um, is critical. So uh, you mentioned the people who use mouthwash. Um, there's been a couple of trials recently. One you mentioned that, that um, they developed elevated blood pressure from the mouthwash, and I think there was a recent one on um, it using mouthwash blunted the cardiometabolic effects of exercise. Um, so, yeah, do you want to explain those in greater detail? Yeah, so you, you hit it. We've known the blood pressure um, elevation effects of mouthwash for greater than 10 years. That if you just take healthy individuals and you do nothing else but give them mouthwash twice a day for seven days a week, their blood pressure goes up. So that was the first indication that these bacteria in the mouth are doing something, and they're doing something very important. And then we've actually built upon that research and identified really these communities of bacteria which are responsible. So we've done full sequence analysis. We've identified the bacteria that are very important in this. In fact, we can predict steady state blood pressure um, by the presence or absence of these select uh, bacteria. And we published this a couple of years ago. But yeah, it's, it, it's more than that. So everybody knows that exercising prevents heart attacks and strokes and protects the cardiovascular system that appear to be independent of any type of microbiome effects because this it was thought that this that exercise was promoting the production of nitric oxide in the lining of the blood vessel by the enzyme nitric oxide synthase but obviously these these bacteria that live in the oral cavity are communicating in some way to the lining of the blood vessel and so if you eradicate the bacteria by using mouthwash you lose the protective effects of exercise. Now, that's profound. In fact, I was on The Doctor Show, which is a a nationwide TV show here in the States, I guess about a month ago, explaining that because it was big news here in the U.S. And again, it's over 200 million people. That's nearly half the population, over half the population in the U.S. that use mouthwash. And those numbers are probably even more staggering worldwide. So again, it's a balance. You know, we have to maintain the right good communities of bacteria while trying to eradicate the bad pathogens that are causing periodontal disease or gingivitis or bad breath and halitosis. 
But you can't just wipe everything out because there's collateral damage. And that collateral damage may be more dramatic and damaging than the underlying pathogen itself. Could could cause you to have a heart attack or stroke. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so is there any ways of assessing um, <laughs> that the oral microbiome, is there any benefits there? And another question, um, how do we um, build up these nit- um, nitrate-reducing bacteria in our oral microbiome? Is there like, you know, prebiotics we can consume? Well, that's a good question, and it's an active uh, area of research in, in, in my lab here in uh, Texas. So to answer the first question... There's, I mean, we do this through tongue scrapings and full metagenomic analysis here in the in a research environment. But to consumers and patients, there's really not a way. Although indirectly, you know, probably 10 years ago, I developed a salivary test strip uh, that you basically just apply some saliva on this test pad and it'll turn a dark pink color or we hope it turns a dark pink color. Uh, and so that gives people kind of a point of uh, care solution to let them know if their body is able to metabolize dietary nitrate into nitrite, nitric oxide. So you can you can use these test strips and apply some saliva, and then if it doesn't turn pink, if it stays white or really a pale pink, then I tell people, well, go eat some spinach or some beets or cabbage or these high nitrate-rich vegetables, and then 90 to 120 minutes later, retest your saliva. Because if your body has the right bacteria, then it takes about 90 to 120 minutes for that nitrate to be concentrated in our salivary glands and then uh, the resident time in the mouth for these bacteria to reduce it to nitrite. And then if your saliva is then enriched in nitrite, which is what the test strips are measuring, then you can see a change in color. Then that tells you that you have the right bacteria. Now, maybe you're just not eating enough green leafy vegetables or maybe you're not making enough stomach acid. So there's there's a host of things that we can then begin to interrogate um, and so that's that's kind of a cool way uh, to tell. But then to answer your second question, how do we restore these? Uh, well, number one, it's again, it's these are, there's billions of bacteria that are fighting for limited resources in the oral cavity. <laughs> so if there's pathogens in there, then these bad guys outcompete the good guys for the limited resources. So if you've got an active oral infection, whether it's you know periodontal disease or gingivitis or you know a cavitation or an infected root canal, uh, then we got to get rid of the infection. And then number two, it could be that, you know, these nitrate respiring bacteria just don't have enough nitrate to respire on. And so if we just include more nitrate in the diet, we know this happens in animals because we published this probably five or six years ago, that if we just give nitrate in the drinking water to rats, and then we analyze the bacteria that live on their tongues and in their oral cavity, that we increase the population of nitrate-reducing bacteria. So my thought is that we're just basically giving these these bugs and these bacteria more substrate to respire on, so they basically wake up, do their job, and hopefully uh, gain control of the ecology and and outcompete the bad guys. Uh, so it may be that simple. I found a number of patents mm. on trying to find ways to, to do this, but uh, it may be just as simple as including more nitrate in your diet to give these the bugs the fuel that they need to respire. That makes sense. Just like uh, yeah, chronic microbiome that responds to um, increased fiber intake. All right, so let's um, stick with the dietary intake because you um, presented some pretty uh, interesting um, facts and, and data on 
the very varying levels of nitrates in foods, um, and surprisingly, or uh, the conventional um, farming methods may provide greater levels than organic. So, can you, you describe the, the research you've done there or looked at? Yeah. So, the question we were trying to ask or to answer is if dietary nitrate is so important, can we change dietary guidelines? So every 10 years, the U.S. changes what they call the, the dietary guidelines. So maybe it's time to consider eating more nitrate-enriched vegetables. So the challenge was, well, how much celery would one need to eat or how much broccoli or spinach or celery? And so we, to answer this question, we went around to five different major cities in the U.S., and we grabbed these vegetables off the shelf, and we grabbed conventional vegetables, and then we, we added, um, we also analyzed organically grown vegetables. And what we found was quite staggering, that depending on where you lived, so for instance, if the, the celery that we bought in Chicago and Dallas contained enough nitrate in that celery that you could eat six or seven stalks of celery and get enough nitrate to lower your blood pressure. But if you were in New York or Raleigh, North Carolina, you would have to eat about 70 to 80 stalks of celery because wow. the nitrate in that celery is so much less than it is in other parts of the country. And it, this is based on this whole field of agronomy on you know, how much nitrogen's in the soil, how, much, uh, how many lightning strikes and storms do they have in, uh, in a year that basically enrich the soil and nitrogen. So that told us, number one, we, there's no way we can make any dietary recommendations because there are regional differences. There's no standardization of this. And then as you brought up, most shockingly, that organically grown vegetables have about 10 times less nitrate than conventionally grown. So if you just do the simple math, you can't, even if you were a vegetarian, you can't eat enough organic vegetables in a day to get enough nitrate to manage your blood pressure. And the reason that is, is because to get an organic label, you know, not only is it free of pesticides and, and herbicides, which is good, so you're getting the benefits of that, but there's yeah. also restrictions on nitrogen-based fertilizers Ah. That the, nit the the soil is depleted in nitrogen, and so it, it makes less nitrate. And then the other important component is that nitrate is required for the assimilation of other nutrients into plants and vegetables. So you may not be getting not enough nitrate from these organically grown vegetables, but they may also be deficient in other key uh, minerals like selenium and chromium and other vitamins. So it, it creates really a challenge on, on how do we use diet and make recommendations on diet to, prov to provide optimal health um, for humans. So it, again, it's a balance. You need nitrate, um, and we don't know how to standardize that now. Um, I mean, we know how to do it, but in terms of uh, farmers standardizing this and, and creating a protocol that you get a sufficient amount of nitrate um, in every uh, batch of broccoli or celery, no matter where it's grown. Uh, but until that happens, then, you know, the only way to do this is to supplement your diet. And now there's standardized mm. products out there that basically provide what's missing in the diet. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> so complicated, isn't it? Um, but yeah, kudos to you for, for doing the work and look forward to seeing more research in that area. We'll come back to the, the supplementation. Um, just wanted to look at now on actually what nitric oxide does in the body. Um, most people, myself um, included, uh, understand it for its role in endothelial function. But what surprised me again was the, the widespread effects of um, 
nitric oxide. So it's sort of leading into your um, third question in your research, the consequence of nitric oxide. Um, yeah, let's explore what it does and where it can go awry and what can be the consequences of it. Sure. So when, when nitric oxide was first discovered back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was thought to be just a simple vasodilator that it opened up blood vessels, dilated blood vessels, and increased oxygen and nutrient delivery and, and managed blood pressure. Well, fast forward, you know, 20 or 30 years, it's much, it's, it's really a, a cell signaling molecule. It's involved in much, many more uh, biological processes than just blood pressure. So number one, it's, it's how insulin signals. Uh, so we have an epidemic here in the U.S. of type 2 insulin-resistant diabetes that's now recognized as loss of nitric oxide production. So if you don't ha- make enough nitric oxide, then insulin, the insulin signaling doesn't happen because in order for GLUT4, which is the kind of the terminal step in glucose uptake in the cell, that protein needs nitric oxide in order to tell it to go to the membrane and bind glucose. So without nitric oxide, there's no glucose uptake and you get insulin-resistant type 2 diabetes. So... And that's important because it's not only important in diabetics for glucose management, but typically diabetics don't die of diabetes. They die from the cardiovascular complications of diabetes. So nitric oxide is playing twofold role in diabetes. And I think that's the reason diabetics, at least here in the U.S., are poorly managed because there's no medications or no strategies employed or recommended by the physician or the endocrinologist to restore nitric oxide production. And we know biologically you cannot improve insulin signaling and glucose uptake without nitric oxide. And then the other is, you know, we know it plays a critical role in our host defense and our immune system. So when we uh, have a pathogen, whether it's a foodborne pathogen or an infection from a wound, our body generates a lot of nitric oxide to actually kill those pathogens, to kill the bacteria, to kill the viruses and the, the, the fungal infections, any type of pathogen the human body sees it generates nitric oxide and then this overproduction of nitric oxide binds to the iron sulfur centers of the bacteria and shuts down their respiration. So again, very important role for nitric oxide. But again, if your body can't make nitric oxide, you become immunocompromised and you have these latent infections and infections that, you know, a lot of times are hard to combat. And then there's another isoform in our nervous in our central nervous system that basically will it's how neurons talk to one another. So it's a neurotransmitter. It's wow. involved in the excitatory NMDA receptor activation, long-term memory potentiation, learning. All of this is dependent upon nitric oxide. And again, if your body can't make it, you lose uh, neurological function, you develop vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, loss of cognition. All of that is related to, to the loss of nitric oxide. Amazing. Um, and... So- uh, I noticed in one of your publications, uh, there's um, appreciable levels in breast milk, and you feel that may have some like neurodevelopmental um, benefits. Is that correct? Yeah, we published that probably ten years ago. That we were interested in trying to figure out the health disparities of breastfed versus formula-fed babies. So it's been known for decades that babies who get breast milk from their mother have better immunological function. They have better developmental function. Um, but those that get a uh, formula have, you know, just the opposite. They don't, they don't do as well. So people thought for years that it was the immunoglobulins that were transferred from the breast milk, um, to the baby that was lacking in, in formula. 
but we, we we did a study where we took breast milk from uh, mothers who had just had given birth and with collected the colostrum and then the, the early milk, the transition milk, and then compared it to what was available in commercial uh, baby formulas. And we found that, you know, breast milk had a lot of nitride in it. And, and, and by design, formula milk has none. And so we, we reconciled this by when babies are born, they're sterile, right? So there's no bacteria in or on the body. And so during the the birth canal, during vaginal delivery, they're they're inoculated. Um, when they when they're delivered and then touching and kissing, then the mother transfers these bacteria. Well, it takes about five to seven days for the gut to become colonized by the bacteria. So nature has developed an exquisite way to deliver nitrite through the breast milk to the baby, to the nursing baby. And then after five to seven days, the breast milk then produces nitrate that is transferred to the infant. And then the baby then has the ability to reduce nitrate to nitrite because it has the right right bacteria. But here's what we're finding, that if you have a cesarean delivered baby or if babies are given antibiotics or if they're premature and have underdeveloped lungs uh, or they develop necrotizing enterocolitis and they're put uh, in the intensive care unit to where the mother can't breastfeed, then they develop a lot of problems. And you can completely overcome this simply by giving nitrite back in the formula milk. And we published this probably five or six years ago. And this was in animal models of necrotizing enterocolitis that you could protect from neck, necrotizing enterocolitis, simply by giving nitrite to these newborn premature pups. You could protect uh, the damaging effects on the gut. And so to me, it's very clear that Again, nature knows a lot more than we do, and nature develops yeah. these ways to to nurture and develop uh, the growing human. And you do that through providing nitrite early on and then allowing the good good bacteria to colonize in and on the, the baby. And then the body is actually can do what it's designed to do, and that's to reduce nitrate to nitrite to nitric oxide. Wow, incredible. So yeah, it's certainly not just for you know, the aging um population from neonates all the way through it seems like obviously nitric oxide is critical um so then from like a, a clinical perspective uh, how, can we test well nitric oxide you said it's so fleeting it's so transient um are there proxy measures for nitric oxide or could we just assume from like the clinical picture if there's um hypertension insulin resistance etc they've got a, a functional um, nitrate deficiency yeah, I think the best measure is just looking at the clinical symptoms and, and chief complaints. So if it's high blood pressure, resistant hypertension, that's typically always a deficiency of nitric oxide. And then if you've got, you know, diabetics, metabolic syndrome patients, um, again, those are clinical symptoms of insufficient nitric oxide production. There are some FDA-cleared medical devices now that can give you an indirect measure of endothelial function that are out there. Um, and then we've developed these biochemical salivary tests, but there's really no clinical marker or proxies for uh, nitric oxide uh, production. Uh, and so the physician or the clinician really just has to, you know, focus on the clinical presentations. And especially if they've got patients who they put on medications and, and do the best based on their uh, best medical judgment, and they're not getting better, 
then the yeah. simplest thing to do is employ strategies that restore nitric oxide. And 99% of the time, they'll get better. I've seen this for the past 10 to 15 years. It's remarkable. Right. Well, yeah, that was my next question. Perhaps they could do a therapeutic trial, um, which leads me on to you've done some um, clinical research uh, with supplemental um, ingredients that boost uh, nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, can you describe some of the the trials you've done and, and what you're actually administering there? Yeah, so I have, I think, 23 or 24 issued U.S. and international patents. In fact, some of my patents are issued there in Australia and New Zealand. So we set out years ago to, to, to develop technology that, number one, if your body can't make nitric oxide, then we have to do it for you. But then number two, as we discussed earlier, we have to fix the enzyme that makes nitric oxide and then give the body what it needs so it can actually utilize nitrate nitrite to make nitric oxide. And so we made these discoveries um, years ago when I was at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston, I was faculty. And so that basically does what I set out to do. If your body can't make nitric oxide, then we do it for you. And we do this in the form of an orally disintegrating tablet. So we, we dictate and determine the chemistry in the oral cavity. And so this lozenge dissolves. It generates about 30 to 40 parts per million nitric oxide gas. So again, if your body can't make nitric oxide, we do it for you. That nitric oxide is vasoactive. We can see dilation of the carotid arteries within probably 30 seconds of putting it in your mouth. Um, and then we fix the, the nitric oxide synthase enzyme. And so this is a, a proprietary product, um, but it basically fixes both pathways. It recouples the nitric oxide synthase enzyme in the lining of the blood vessels, and then it provides a source of nitride and the, the reduction capacity to generate nitric oxide along the physiological oxygen gradient. And so we've published, I think, six peer-reviewed placebo-controlled clinical trials, um, and it does what nitric oxide has been shown to do. It lowers blood pressure, normalizes blood pressure in both hypertensive and prehypertensive patients. It improves exercise performance. Um, it leads to plaque regression. So people who have plaque in the lining of their blood vessels, we see wow. about 11, 11% plaque regression in six months. Um, what else? Uh, dilates the carotids, improves functional capacity of the heart. So on a six-minute walk test, people were able to walk significantly further um, because of better functioning uh, of the heart, better circulation. So it's, it's, it does exactly what we've known nitric oxide does for the past 40 years. And it's, it's done in the form of a, <clears throat> of a product um, that's sold here in the U.S. and uh, many places around the world. Um, amazing. Have you heard any anecdotes or reports on non sort of cardiovascular benefits, patients, I don't know, their diabetes improving or any other sort of areas outside of the, the cardiovascular benefits? Yeah, so metabolic syndrome, it's you know, that's kinda of like the meta the, the holy triad of medicine. It's like uh, yeah. high blood pressure, uh hyperglycemia and then hyperlipidemia. And we know that and one of my patents is a method of reducing triglycerides. And so we're seeing reductions in triglycerides, normalization of uh, hyperlipidemia, fasting glucose improves, insulin levels improve, and then blood pressure improves. And so that, those are kind of, pre- at least those were a little bit predictive because we knew that nitric oxide played a role in that. But here's the other thing we're finding that's kind of was, was surprising. People sleep better, and I still don't understand, I don't have a clear understanding of mechanism of how we're affecting sleep. 
Um, but people report that they sleep better when they fix their nitric oxide productions. Uh, sexual function improves, which that's not surprising. That's a vascular problem. Yeah. Um, people feel better, more energy. They're able to work out longer, perform better. Um, but that, but I think those are those were pretty predictable. Yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, and also really uh, amazing and fascinating uh, were, is the um, topical cream you've developed. So for not only aging but scars and acne. So, yeah, nitric oxide works topically. Can you describe that? Yeah, so once we figured out that we knew how to make nitric oxide, then we, we were armed with kind of an unlimited potential on how we deliver this. And so I put this in the, in the form of a topical, a dual chamber, that when you mix these two components together, it liberates, again, 20 to 30 parts per million NO gas. Um, and so what that does is, you know, when you apply this topically, it, it recruits capillaries or the small blood vessels, so you can increase blood flow. Uh, and really, signs of aging, whether it's fine lines and wrinkles or age spots or dehydration, loss of volume on the face or the hands, it's really poor circulation. So when, when, the, when there's reduced blood flow or compromised circulation, then aging happens. So the cells don't turn over. They can't make a new cell that works properly. And so what we do is we just try to have site-directed increase in blood flow. And so if you apply this to the face, we see an increase in perfusion. And over time, we're seeing inflammation go away, whether it's acne or uh, inflammation of the skin. Uh, age spots disappear. Fine lines and wrinkles disappear. And it's truly anti-aging um, in a bottle. And now we're developing technologies for wound healing because we know that a certain amount of nitric oxide can kill infections, whether it's Pseudomonas or Staph or MRSA. And then wow. to heal a wound, you got to kill the infection and get blood flow to the wound. And so nitric yeah. oxide does both of those. So we're seeing very promising results uh, in the wound healing. Yeah, you showed some um, some slides and there's a young woman with a huge ulcer on her, her jaw and that um, cleared up, yeah, remarkably with the, the, the cream. Amazing. Yeah, so that just shows the power of nitric oxide. And, you know, if you can harness this and figure out how to deliver it safely and effectively to humans, then their life change. And I think, you know, medicine over the next 10 to 15 years will change once we educate enough doctors and healthcare systems on the importance of nitric oxide. Because as I mentioned, you, your body cannot and will not heal without it. Absolutely. Um, well, you, you've uh, explored it from all angles. So What's on the horizon in the future um, from dietary, you know, campaigning or um, clinical trials or molecular understanding? <laughs> I bet you're a busy man. What, what's on the what's in the horizon? Well, I think it's as you said. We're just trying to, you know, continue to innovate and improve, um, you know, what we're doing. So I think from a dietary standpoint, I think the whole field of agronomy can can learn from this and figure out how to make. Uh, grow foods that are more standardized and not just their nitrate content, but other vitamins and minerals that many foods are missing. Uh, on the healthcare front, I think we're still, you know, pushing the envelope and developing nitric oxide-based drugs and therapeutics. Uh, we've been very successful in the nutrition and dietary supplement space. Um, there's still a lot of room for innovations for drug therapy, and then whether that's oral or topical drug applications, but. You know, it's exciting for me because we know how to make nitric oxide. And now the challenge is getting this in the hands of people that can affect patient care and, and public health. 
So that's why I appreciate yeah. this opportunity because oh, to me, it's not better. about the science anymore. The science is very well elucidated. Uh, to me, it's all about education and awareness. So anytime I get a platform to teach and educate on the importance of nitric oxide, I always welcome that. So thank you very much for... Yes, for- oh, I'm very appreciative. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to say it's amazing. You know, as I said, you've been doing this for two decades and from understanding mechanisms to measuring foods, um, executing dietary, uh, so, so clinical trials. It sounds like you're really um, looking at it from all angles and um, really passionate about it. And yeah, you're right. I had this vague idea about nitric oxide for vasodilation, but as I said, um, when I saw your presentation, hopefully you've, I, I know you've certainly conveyed it here today, how widespread the actions are and how important it is. And um, some of the practical ways we can... Um, achieve greater nitrate levels through our diet, but potentially maybe needed to, to supplement. Um, it's been brilliant. So um, where can we find more about you and your work or what other ways can we learn about what you've done and continue to do? Yeah, I, I set up an educational website. Um, it's non-commercial. It's really just a portal to go to informative site. It's it's drnathansbryan.com. That's dr. Uh, Nathan, N-A-T-H-E-N, S is in Scott, and then B-R-Y-A-N.com, DrNathanSBryan.com. There's some cool videos on there. We created a six-minute video that really, in six minutes, condenses what we've just discussed in about 45 minutes into a cool animated video and hopefully provides some cool education around nitric oxide. Um, I do a monthly uh, blog to hopefully provide some up-to-date practical information on nitric oxide. I've got a YouTube channel where a number of my lectures are, are housed at, um, um, and of course you can find me by Google. <laughs> Fantastic. And you got a, a book, um, functional nutritional nitric oxide. Yeah. I published several books. The latest is a book called functional nitric oxide nutrition, where again, we talk about what you and I just talked about for the past uh, 45 minutes, but really reviewing the science and really the, the chronology of this progress in the way of thinking in the nitric oxide field about, you know, where we come from and, and where we're going and how we can basically use some common sense measures in diet and lifestyle uh, to promote yeah. nitric oxide production and, and prevent disease. I mean, that's what we're after. Um, and more from a technical perspective, um, is it a textbook, the, the nitrite and nitrate in human health and disease? Yeah, that's a book that I edited with Joe Lascalzo, who's chair of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Um, that That is a well-referenced, edited version. It's a hardback, kind of a medical textbook. But for those of you who are interested in really an in, in-depth, really a course on nitric oxide, I would recommend that one. Uh, it's a scientific read. It's not a lay read. The other one is for lay, lay people. This yeah. is a very scientific, technical read. But again, I invited the world's experts in their respective fields to contribute to that book. So it's, it, I'm very proud of that and really honored by these these experts uh, contributed that important body of knowledge. Yeah, it's incredible effort, uh, all the different chapters and areas. It's amazing. Okay, well, yeah, I really appreciate your time. It's great um, for you to be able to broadcast this information. Yeah, super important. Um, yeah, and your, your passions, yeah, palpable are really um, respect that the work you've done and continue to do. So I look forward to hearing from um, more from you in the future. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. 
Join our Practitioner Only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.